Today, we're introduced to a character by the name of Saul. If you've been following us on the journey of the book of Acts, you might be thinking, wait, Kotz, are you sure this is the first time we're meeting Saul in the book of Acts? Because I could have sworn we've heard this name before. Well, if you thought that, you're absolutely right. He's been mentioned in one sentence a few chapters ago. Yeah, remember that guy, Stephen? the first recorded person murdered for being a Jesus follower in the Bible? Well, he was dragged out of Jerusalem by the religious leaders and they started hurling stones at him until he was dead. And in that scene, it states that the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yeah, this is a gesture people did in that culture when they attributed credit. Yes, Stephen, one of the church's first leaders known for taking care of widows, his death was Saul's idea. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's a term for the church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. When the church was under attack and Stephen was killed, the Jesus followers dispersed in the surrounding areas. But as we discover in the last few weeks, as these Jesus followers ran into areas like Samaria, they created more Jesus followers. Wherever they went, Jesus' movement spread. I mean, it almost feels like if you want to keep the Jesus movement from spreading, you let them stay in its comfortable huddle in Jerusalem, right? But as church history tells us, the church was persecuted and the church spread throughout the ends of the earth. And now there's rumors that there was a new epicenter of the Jesus movement in a city called Damascus. So Saul decided to go to Damascus to extinguish this new hotspot of the Jesus movement and make a few arrests. But as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice call to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay, so if those couple of verses seem a bit crazy to you, I want to take this moment to let you know that you're not alone, and I want to take a few more moments to explain to you what this all means. I mean, it describes to us what happened, but doesn't outright tell us what it means. So Saul is a Jew who has spent his entire life studying the scriptures. He knew all the Jewish Bible, which we like to call the Old Testament. He knew all of it by heart and prayed and meditated on those words day and night. And one of the most popular passages in that culture was the book of Ezekiel. And especially in the beginning parts of the book of Ezekiel, there's a vision of a great chariot with whirling wheels and flashing lights, which is carried by four-faced angels who is also sparkling and flashing. And it sounds crazy, but there's a bunch of eyes on the wheel and a rainbow all around it and a throne like a great jewel. And through it all, Ezekiel is very careful in his wording. He makes sure he doesn't say that he actually saw God. All he says is that he saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So this character, while divine, is a mystery character. We don't know who it is. And many Jews in the first century, they prayed that they would see a similar vision to Ezekiel's. And the way that this passage in Acts is written is supposed to give the indication that Saul's prayer was granted. He saw something similar to what Ezekiel witnessed hundreds of years ago. And as Saul listened really carefully to what the mysterious character had to say to him, he hears these words, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Saul, being a good Jew, asked the question that many Jews had pondered for ages about this mysterious figure. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And guess what the man of mystery said? I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting, he replied. So this is like completely groundbreaking. This is blowing Saul's mind. The Jews, they've been trying to figure out who this mystery character is for ages. And the true identity of the one who had the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God was actually Jesus. I mean, like, wow, right? For Saul, this changes everything. And well, he's now realizing that he's been tracking down and arresting and killing this movement and his followers. So Jesus says, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, as crazy as this story was, this isn't the point of today's sermon. Yes, if the book of Acts was a movie, the majority of our budget would probably go towards the special effects of what we just talked about, and it'll probably include in the teaser trailer. But what we're about to discover is that the main point is in the following scene, and this was just a setup for that. Meanwhile, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Okay, so we meet a new character. His name is Ananias. He lives in Damascus and he is a Jesus follower. He seems to know Saul's reputation. He knows that he's a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, a super orthodox Pharisaic Jew. And he has the authority from the highest office to arrest and even kill some Jesus followers. But God tells Ananias to go and meet with this Jesus follower assassin. And he even gives him the specific address where he will find him. And he's told that Saul is going to be an instrumental part of the next phase of the Jesus movement. But as we know Saul now, he's a dangerous man. And that what Ananias will do next will be a pivoting point that will make Saul into the person who will spread God's love to the world. So if you look at the pattern of what's been happening so far, this is really, really interesting because so far we've seen this movement go from Jews to foreign Jews to mixed Jews to non-Jews. And geographically speaking, we've seen this movement go from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. So in other words, we've seen the Jesus movement tear down walls culturally, racially, geographically, and now Jesus wants his followers to venture out into a new category tearing down walls between the church and its enemies. I mean, when Ananias goes and ministers to Saul, the guy who killed one of Ananias' leaders, the guy who was on his way to arrest men and women who followed Jesus, the guy who thought his calling in life was to annihilate all Jesus followers, when Ananias was called to minister to that guy, it was terrifying, but he knew it had to be done because that's what Jesus did. Look, if the calling of the church is to watch God act and then join in on it, then there was no way around it. Ananias had to go and befriend Saul. So let's pay close attention to how Ananias ministers to Saul. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so did you catch that? Yeah, Ananias called Saul brother. 
Even before Saul had shown any kind of remorse or any kind of repentance or any kind of change in his lifestyle or belief system, Ananias recognizes him as a member of his spiritual family. So uh, why would he do that? Well, this concept, believe it or not, is not new to Ananias. It's something that Jesus taught from the very beginning, that belonging always comes first. I mean, we find Jesus calling his followers brothers and sisters even before they put their faith in him. I mean, have you seen how often they got some of Jesus' basic teachings wrong? They were included in his close circle of friends even before they got their theology right. Jesus even treated people who didn't believe in his death and resurrection as family. I mean, don't you think this is kind of backwards in today's world where we tell people, if you believe in the things that we do, then you're part of our family? In Jesus' world, belonging always comes first. So that's why if you walk into our church, Westlake Community Church, the assumption should always be that we should always say that that person is automatically family. Even before we ask them what they believe or what they don't believe, we should just assume that they belong. All right, so let's take a look at what happens to Saul after he was included into the family of Jesus. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Belonging to God's family does not have prerequisites. In the first century, transformation and conversion took after inclusion. Now, if you've been with our church for years, you probably heard me tell you the story about St. Patrick. And if you haven't, here's a quick summary. Patrick was born in the late 300s. In his mid-teens, he was captured by Irish pirates and was imprisoned for six years. In his early 20s, he escaped but received a call from God saying that he needed to go back and minister to the very people who captured him. For the next few years, he trained under the Catholic Church so he'd be prepared to go back to Ireland as a missionary. And years later, he returned to Ireland and started a church. Well, a few came and he tried to convert them, but no one really stuck around. And that's when he realized that Jesus was not about conversion, but about family. So he tore down his church along with any teachings he received from the Catholic seminary regarding church membership and rebuilt something called a monastic community. This is basically a place where anyone and everyone is accepted, regardless of whether you agree with Jesus or not. If you come into the building, you're family and we feed you and you have a place to sleep. Yeah, basically he changed his outlook from come and become a member of our church to belonging always comes first. And over time, more and more people came to these monastic communities. And because these were Irish pirates who were accepted for who they were, they began to show interest in the God who Patrick was representing. And before long, these pirates became Jesus followers. And then they created their own monastic communities and it started to spread and more and more were created. And as history would tell us, the greatest revival happened in Europe in the fifth century because of Patrick and these pirates. You see, belonging can soften the hardest of hearts. And we know this because Saul was one of the most stubborn people in the first century. I mean, for him to become a Jesus follower was to give up everything. His high place in society, his reputation in the religious community, his financial security, and his safety. I mean, you'll find out in the coming chapters that Saul's conversion, it put him at the top of the most wanted list. And belonging can take pirates and transform them into people who spread heaven to the communities around them. I mean, it took a barbaric civilization and made them into a flourishing, selfless community. And when I look at my own story, my own testimony, I realized that feeling like I was a part of a family at my church was one of the driving forces to my growth and commitment to Jesus. Like in my youth, the church family was a tangible expression an extension of God's love to me. So church, may God continue to demonstrate for us what unconditional love looks like so we could live according to his example. And may you put aside your cultural, political, socioeconomical, and racial prejudices aside and live by the motto, belonging always comes first. 
And through that, may you experience heaven together. God bless you.